radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Reese Patterson. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here with Stephen Piller, who is from the Geology Department. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question that we're going to ask you is tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Well, I'm a first year's master's student, as you said, in the Department of Geology here at Western. Um, I also did my undergraduate here, and um, my research is working with fluid inclusions inside rocks. So basically little tiny pockets of gas or fluid, that's any kind of fluid that's trapped inside a mineral or a rock. And I'm using uh, nuclear magnetic resonance uh, spectroscopy to try and evaluate the compositions and the internal pressure of it. Cool. So Stephen, tell us how you got interested first in, say, chemistry, and then you moved on into, well, examining and imaging rocks and geology. So tell us a bit about your journey from, from your undergrad to graduate studies. Yeah, for sure. It was a, it was a weird little journey that I took. So I, I actually came into university from high school, planning on taking physics. And after my first year, I realized that definitely wasn't the course I wanted to take, but I actually really enjoyed chemistry. So I decided to major in chemistry throughout my first four years at Western and uh, also taking a major in psychology. But in my fourth year, I met up with my now current uh, supervisor, Roberta Fleming. Uh, Actually, whether or not she wants me to say that at a bar one night and uh, we got to talking and... um, yeah, so she learned that I had my background in chemistry and I was planning on graduating, but I had no idea what I'd do with my life. So uh, having a background in chemistry herself, Robbie actually asked me, hey, would you be interested in doing a master's here with me? A lot of my research is pretty heavy on chemistry. And uh, at the time, I wasn't sure if she was entirely serious, but I touched base. I sent her an email a little bit later on and uh, we had a couple meetings and discussed a couple of possible projects and uh, worked it all out. So I submitted my application for a graduate program in the field of geology. I actually ended up taking Excellent. an extra year in undergrad. I took a fifth year and took an entire minor in geology that year. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so I ended up graduating with a major chemistry, minor psychology, minor in geology. So got right. a little something. To, at least I actually made use out of my fifth year, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so... Uh, I have a little bit, I have a geology background, obviously, I'm in the same department as you, Um, but what type of minerals are you uh, looking at with the fluid inclusions? So right now we're not looking at anything too fancy. It's mostly just halites, because obviously there's always going to be fluid involved with their formation, so you have a good knowledge of what the fluid inclusions have. Um, That and they're really, really simplistic chemically, right, it's just sodium and chlorine, so that actually eliminates a lot of interference that we might have when looking at them using NMR. Um, really common samples, usually pretty simple fluid inclusions. So um, the work that I'm doing is kind of preliminary meth- like methods research. So as far as geology goes, there isn't a lot of use of NMR spectroscopy. It's mostly reserved for like inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, stuff like that, pharmaceuticals industry in particular. Um, but as an analytical tool, we don't really use it much in geology. And I think that's usually because it's, as soon as you don't know exactly what you're looking for, things get really crazy, really fast. Um, if you look at an NMR spec, like spectrum, that is not a pure sample. It pretty much just looks like background noise, but so 
that's kind of why we're focusing now on just really simple minerals, um, halite and uh, quartz for now actually as well. So I guess, I mean, I don't have a background in geology. I do philosophy, but this is really fascinating for me. And I guess I want to know more about, say, the difference between the standard um, MRI and the kind of MRI you are engaged with, the nuclear MRI. So what's the difference between these two kinds of imaging? And tell us a bit of how um, these processes actually work and are helpful for your research. Yeah, for sure. Um, the thing between uh, the difference between MRI and NMR imaging versus spectroscopy is after you run an MRI, like you would if you go to the hospital to get a scan, you actually receive a visible image back that kind of maps where all the radiation is coming from and gives you an overall picture of what's going on. With NMR, the result is basically one single spectrum that's an average of thousands, hundreds of scans where you just pulse your sample with a certain frequency of, actually it's in the radio wave frequency. So that's why you have these big shielding capsules around it. If you look up an NMR machine, there are these giant machines and a lot of that's for shielding and cooling. So you can isolate the sample from any background radiation. But what you do is you're gonna pulse a sample and if you get really down into it, it's like quantum chemistry that honestly I don't fully I understand. So <laughs> simplistically, what you're doing is you're radiating a sample, and that's going to cause a disturbance in the balance between um, up and down spin with the nuclei or the nuclei that you're probing. So you're going to pulse it, it's going to create an imbalance, and then they're going to flip back to their natural state. And what that's going to do, it's going to release a very specific wavelength that you can then receive using the same coil that you use to produce a signal. So it's kind of like a back and forth little ping pong. What you're going to do is you're going to ping with your um, your signal, and it's going to hit the sample, and it's going to pong back, and you're going to pick up that signal. And that signal is very, very unique to the chemical environment of the um, nuclei that you're probing. So the thing with NMR is you can only probe one specific nuclei at a time. So whether that's hydrogen or carbon or sodium, it's dialed in because it's very, very finely tuned to a certain frequency. And there are very, very wide ranges of the frequencies that can be produced or transmitted for each nucleus. So what that lets us do is when we're studying a certain sample, say halite, where it's just sodium and chlorine, if we only want to see the environment around the sodium, we're not going to get any interference at all from any other nuclei that might be in the sample. So thank you. Yeah, I hope that helps. <laughs> A lot. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, so pardon this question, but why do we care what's inside the fluid inclusion? <laughs> uh, good, honest question. Yeah, no, um, I didn't actually really know about fluid inclusions until Robbie approached me in the final months of my fifth year before starting my master's. And she actually proposed that we work with Nigel. I'm the fluid inclusion expert at Western. And uh, what we can do is by evaluating the internal pressure and composition of the fluid inclusion. So how much salt is in it? How much CO2 is dissolved? Um, what pressure was this trapped at? We can kind of back calculate that to the conditions that were there when it was first formed. They're kind of like tiny little time capsules locked away inside the mineral. And since the mineral is 
so much more robust than say doing this with a sample from the arctic ice for paleoclimates instead you're looking millions of years in the past at gases and other salts and stuff that are trapped when they were first formed so what can that can do if you really want to get like bottom line what can this do for me um a lot of uh, exploration companies can look for mineral traces and specific temperatures and pressures that might be indicative of um, hydrothermal activity that might deposit a lot of precious metals or it might give you an indication of where oil and gas reserves might be and i believe there has been a study on uh, using nmr on uh, fluid inclusions that are rich in hydrocarbons so there you can actually see and determine what types of hydrocarbons are also trapped within these fluid inclusions so yeah. I was wondering, Stephen, what kind of uh, what aims do you have uh, that you hope to achieve by the end of your research? Um, those sort of goals that inform geoscientists. Um, can you tell us something about your research in that in those terms? Um, in terms of my goals, um, yes. we're kind of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. Right now, it's Amazing. very very hypothetical at this point. Um, we have some preliminary results that we have like we can see in we can see the fluid inclusions contents We do get signal from fluid inclusions and There is a discrete chemical shift. So there's a change in the signal based on our pure um, solvated halite so our salt water versus our relatively pure quartz sample um, We can actually see a chemical shift based on the sodium sample so we know something is changing its environment, whether it be pressure, level of salinity, like how concentrated it is, or other interfering ions. We know there's a change, but now we need to understand more systematically how that change happens. So my goal, if I had to pick one that would I would want to work, would be to be able to probe the salinity based on the chemical shift. Cool. So. Ideally, you could put a small bit of sample into the NMR, which is about as much as you can put into the NMR at a time. It's very, very small amounts. Um, you put it in there, and from one single NMR scan, you can get the salinity. If we can do that, excellent, because from there, it's a lot more easy. Like it's, it's a lot easier. Sorry, to um, try and calculate the pressure, which is normally what you would do with a microthermometry stage, and that can take on the order of weeks to months to do because you need to take a representative sample of all the fluid inclusions of interest across your sample using a microscope and heating and cooling a stage. So instead of doing all that, the hope would be you put into the NMR and a few days later, you can have quantitative results. All right, so you're trying to speed up the process and make it the most efficient, efficient yep. way as possible. Um, if you're allowed to say, where are your samples from? Um, I have some from New Mexico. I have some from South Africa. Um, planning on getting some from some uh, Godridge, I believe. I want to get some from Godridge, so we have some local, like Southern Ontario samples. Which I think that would be neat to do. And yeah, no, I think that's I think that's it. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you have any samples from uh, Southern Ontario? Because that would be super, that'd be interesting to see what the, um, I mean, everyone talks about how the Michigan and Appalachian basins are shallow inland seas, and that's why we have the Salinas salt formation. So 
it'd be interesting to see how the actual environment was back mm -hmm. then if there, there was fluid inclusions in there but yeah yeah totally that's definitely a hope of mine but uh as it stands nigel's sitting on a wealth of samples from uh new mexico so we're gonna use those as our kind of standard because they've been pretty well studied we think we know pretty well what the contents of the fluid inclusions are and we have a basic understanding of the pressures that are found within the samples so just as our first samples to do now as a proof of concept that this is actually a viable thing to do we're going to start working with those and see where we can go from there so stephen uh, we live in unprecedented times nowadays. Um, the situation for us graduate students, the more vulnerable people, is a lot worse. And uh, I was just wondering, how has this situation impacted your research? And um, I'm sure there must be some, some, I mean, especially for your field. I mean, it's not like you're doing pure mathematics sitting in, uh, in your kitchen, as, as some people might be. Or doing philosophy, just thinking really hard about stuff. <laughs> um, you have to go out in the real world and, and conduct some experiments and use some machinery as well, perhaps. So I was wondering, how has this impacted your research? And also, um, what does the future look like uh, for people in your field and in your situation? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, as far as the whole COVID-19, and self-quarantine social isolation thing uh i think i'd speak for most geologists at this point that a lot of the research has come to a standstill we are non-essential research so most <laughs> of our labs have been shut down the only access that we are providing is to maintain the machinery that needs to keep working so that the labs are operational when we get back and uh unfortunately i didn't get any new data right before all this rolled in so i'm kind of Trying to trying to get myself working on drafting up my thesis already. Might as well get the literature review written up if I can. But uh, I've had about four or five hours on the actual NMR spectrometer so far, which is a lot considering because that always booked solid. I was hoping this summer, once the undergraduates went away, that there'd be a lot more free time. But again, under the situation, that's not looking so good. A grad uh, student's dream of uninterrupted yeah. time to write their <laughs> review. <laughs> exactly. But just, uh, a small, yeah. just a small follow-up. I mean, I see some trees behind you. Where are you? <laughs> I'm actually spending some time with my mom right now, isolating up at, uh, at my cottage. <laughs> I know yes, everyone said stay at home, but <laughs> I delivered some groceries. I, I delivered about two weeks of groceries to my mom. So we've been into town once so far in the three and a half weeks, I, no, about three weeks that I've been here. So now we're, we're about as isolated as can be. Hopefully you didn't have any plans to travel to New Mexico for your samples and just, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, we have all the samples we need for uh, now. Yeah, and that's another odd thing about my work being in the field of geology. A lot of the time, like context holds a lot of value for geological samples, but with my work, what I'm trying to do is kind of remove that need for any kind of context to interpret it as like quantitative samples. I don't need to understand where it came from because what I'm going to tell you, it shouldn't matter where. I don't know if that really makes as much sense, but uh, I'm mostly looking at the data and trying to compare that to whether it's totally valid, not trying to use it to understand any wider geological 
systems at this point. So I don't know if I have a lot of field work in my future, but uh, back to what you were asking Yusuf about how I think this might change the future for geologists in the field. Yes. Um, honestly, I'm going to say it probably won't change a thing. <laughs> geologists are pretty hands-on as a, as a generality, but uh, they like to get out there. They like their field work. And of course, why wouldn't you? Um, and yeah, it's, it's mostly all hands-on work, whether it's on a microscope or in the lab on some kind of spectrometer. But, uh, yeah, not a lot of it can be done remotely. I guess I was also wondering, um, any plans for doing a doctorate in your field? I mean, maybe it's too early. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing for far too long. <laughs> uh, I still don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where, where, where I can find a job, I'll take it. But what about you? Maybe you have things better thought out. Uh, I wouldn't say I have anything better thought out. Um, I have considered the possibility of a PhD, but at this point, it's kind of uh, way at the back of my mind right now. Um, I've had people tell me, like, when I laid out, like, my research goals, like, what I see the potential in my project right now. A lot of people are saying, like, yeah, there's no way you're getting that done within the scope of a master's. You should do a PhD. Um, and for sure, there's a lot of, lot of room to grow with the research that I'm doing, being, like, such a new field of research. But on the other hand, maybe things don't really pan out that well, or there's a reason that there's nothing published or very little published on this research. So uh, it's all very up in the air. You could be the world leader in this. <laughs> you, could, you could be the person that creates the first step on the pathway for the, yes. the future geologists, right? Well, that's the dream, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> not putting course, too much stock in that just yet. Of course, you would include uh, field work in that, right? You would make. Of course, yeah, yeah. Then, then you'd be incorporating the field work. Of course, of course. <laughs> So I sometimes ask this silly question, and sometimes I get answers that are kind of cool. Um, but I was wondering, as a as someone who's interested in geology and studying mappings of you know how how um, uh, we can do imaging of geostructures, is there any particular movie that you like that you know it's geologists and geochemists in particular are huge fans of? I know we had someone else who was interested in. Um, sort of black holes and stuff. So of course I spoke about, we spoke about uh, in the Interstellar movie, um, but mm. I wonder if there's, if there's an interesting, cool movie that you can suggest that people can learn a lot about things that we take for maybe granted. I do not have an answer off the top of my head for that, no. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Geologists are often forgotten about, if I can be bold to say that, but... Uh... They're generally not the first scientist you turn to for a, a big blockbuster movie. <laughs> I know there's a, there's a B-roll movie of a, oh, it's like the monster within or something like that. And it was filmed on a rig in Lake Erie back in like the 70s. And they're supposed to be in the middle of Antarctica and the geologist is saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. And they're taking this like core out and it's almost like a mixture of like alien. So you have this alien and like nobody listens to the geologist. Nobody listens to the scientist as every science movie is. They never listen to us. So I think that's the only movie that I've seen that the geologist was totally just forgotten about. Um. Yeah, um, moving back to a bit, a bit of um, on your research, what 
are some of the things that have really fascinated you a lot? Uh, is, is there some sort of discovery that you've made uh, or a new thing that you didn't know and you realize and you're like, holy smokes, this is amazing. I should tell the whole world and make a movie or something. Um, have you had any moments like that or anything similar? Um, one moment that stands out is uh, when I was first learning to do microthermometry, which is kind of the fundamental way of researching fluid inclusions. Um, what you get to do is you have a big can of liquid nitrogen. Yeah, and cool. you have this little tiny microscope stage where you put your little chip of sample on it and you look down the microscope and you vary the temperature. So what you get to do is drop it down to negative 100, negative 150 degrees Celsius, and you get to watch these little tiny fluids freeze. And you can actually see them like fracture, like as the ice like cracks within it. And then you get to heat it up and watch it all kind of like melt slowly. And you can actually watch the phase changes, which is really cool to do. Um, uh, what what do you mean being, by phase changes? Like uh, you get like, to watch it. Oh, honestly, if I when I explain it, it doesn't sound very cool, but you get to watch like the little pocket of ice melt. <laughs> 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 That's not the entirely the coolest part, though. The coolest part is when you are trying to reach what's called a homogenization temperature, where uh -huh. all of the fluid inside the inclusion is in the same state. So normally you would have one or two different, maybe three different states inside of fluid inclusion, whether it's a daughter crystal, so like a solid that's crashed out of solution, or you have a gas phase and a liquid phase. What you get to do is you get to heat that up until all of it becomes one single phase. And just before that happens, if you have a pocket of gas, you can start to watch it bounce around as it starts to like get smaller and smaller as more of the gas joins the one more homogeneous fluid. And it actually follows a pseudo Brownian motion, which if you know Brownian motion is actually molecular motion. Yeah. So these are so small and they're moving so quickly and heating up enough that they start to simulate that kind of random motion. Oh, that's so that amazing. really cool. That is really cool. Uh, wow. That, thanks for sharing that. How small are we talking about these fluid inclusions? Like, are we talking like a little tiny, like, left a little baby sample of like, <laughs> how small are we talking when you're looking at these samples? Yeah, um, I know you can get uh, fluid inclusion samples that are easily visible to the naked eye. So I think uh, Nigel could show you one that's like on the scale of centimeters. It's a massive one that he has in a piece of halite, or not halite, sorry, quartz, I believe. It's a really large fluid inclusion in quartz, but they can get all the way down to like 20 micrometers in scale, like absolutely minuscule. So wow. yeah, there's a huge range and it all just depends how they form, whether they've been altered in the course of their geologic history, the mineral, how it expands. What happens if you drop one? Um, that's actually a big problem with microthermometry as well. Um, physical damage, you can crack them. And of course, that will alter the internal pressure because the volume changes where the fluid inclusion is concerned. But uh, if you heat them up too much, you can crack them. If you freeze them and they have uh, a certain composition within them, like if there's too much water, then you can crack it that way as well as water expands. So uh, physical damage, yeah, you can destroy a sample pretty easily. Um, usually with the smaller like fluid inclusion samples, um, dropping a sample wouldn't be too bad. Uh, they're small enough that the shock isn't going to crack open any of the fluid inclusions. So, I guess in your, in your journey all the way from some chemistry, some interest in physics as well, to 
doing geology and in particular geochemistry. Um, what advice or suggestions can you give to other people who may be figuring things out and maybe have, have, have some similar interest? Is there something you can suggest to them that would help them in making, in, in their, in making their academic decision? Um, it's going to sound cliche, but uh, always keep your mind open, keep your options open. Uh, if it wasn't for me taking a geology course in fourth year and getting kind of a taste for what geology actually is, I would have never found this program. Um, I know coming into university, I wasn't even really aware of the geology program. So, I mean, it wasn't for me taking the chance on one elective course and I wouldn't have found myself here where I am. And uh, I think also it's important to look at what type of work you want to do in the future. So a lot of people are saying like, yeah, I want to go to medical school. I want to be a doctor. But my biggest fear always like coming through school was like, what if I get there and I realize what I'm actually doing day to day is just totally not what I thought it was. But uh, I think it's think more towards where you see yourself wanting to be when you're working, not necessarily what the image of that is. Um, yeah. I know with chemistry, it was a lot of hands-on work, a lot of lab work, which is where I really kind of found the joy in it. Um, I love playing with all the instruments, uh, using all the different equipment. And yeah, that was really fulfilling for me. But I definitely didn't see myself sitting inside on a computer all day. And geology, fantastic as it is. We have all the field work opportunities, right? So look at what you want and try and... Uh, direct yourself more towards what can actually provide that for you. You're quite right. I mean, I quite agree that it's so important to keep our options open and people start doing one field and they go completely left field and they love this new unexplored thing as well. And that has been the experience of so many of us. Um, that's yeah, I know that in uh, geology is definitely one of those things that uh, we're very lucky to be able to study the earth and we can go out in the field and there's so many different branches of it. I mean, there's geologists that never leave the office and that's just, I can't believe that. I don't know why you'd want to stay in an office all day. <laughs> um, but we are just about out of time. So thanks so much for coming on GradCast. Um, if anyone wants to learn about your research, is there uh, anywhere that they could reach you? Yeah, uh, my university email. Spilar, S-P-I-L-A-R, at uwo.ca. That's always open. If you want to shoot me an email, I'd be happy to get back to you. And uh, social media-wise, I'm not very active there with any kind of content, not just geology, but uh, feel free to take a peek on there if you're really interested. <laughs> um, so this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Breeze Patterson. And I've been your co-host, Yusuf Hassan. And we've been speaking with Stephen Pilar from the Earth Science Department. This episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great night. And